In last week's sermon, we, we saw how God created a world in which humanity could live actually naked and unashamed, meaning that, that human beings could live in transparency without any feelings of shame, without any feelings that there might be threats or hurt or fear. But then as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, and from that point on, humanity fell into shame. And I, I don't think, and I believe that, that no one since then has ever really understood what the phrase naked and unashamed means. Even in the best of marriages in a post-fall world, there can still be feelings of shame, still be hurts that exist. And in this post-fall world, we learn at a very young age that we can't fully trust people. Go to a nursery, or you have your own children, or you look at your nieces or nephews and you see how they interact. And you know the first response when a toy is taken from them is not, oh, well, you must need that more than I. <laughs> Yelling, screaming, not fair, hitting, punching, biting. And it doesn't just stop there, right? It goes on into adulthood. And in adulthood, for many of us, it just becomes more sophisticated. I mean, there are the people who definitely will harm in outward ways, but, but many of us, we've just learned to cover it in certain ways. Instead of hurting somebody face to face, we gossip about them or we shun them. But we realize we live, I think we all realize, we live in a world where there is so much abuse and trauma and judgmentalism. Gone are the days of naked and unashamed. Enter the days of nakedness, and we know it. And why is that the case? I mean, we can say the answer to that is sin. But what does that mean? What is sin? Essentially, when we look at the narrative of Adam and Eve and their fall into sin, we see that the great temptation was self-exaltation. That's the center of sin, to raise yourself up. Eve was tempted to be like God. In other words, to be at the level of God and to live, be able to live and have life apart from God. That's always the essence of sin. Sin says, you got this, while making much and making vain promises to make much of you. Sin is self-centered, suppresses the truth about God, and self-centeredness means everyone's going to get hurt. <laughs> I mean, people around you are going to get hurt. Sin always destroys, and sin always brings increased shame. Now, sure, sin can be pleasurable for a season. The Bible even says that. But sin brings shame between people, and it ultimately brings death. And this is what we saw in the text that we looked at last week. And this, is what we're, and this is what we see in the world around us, don't we? Self-centeredness, self-exaltation brings death. Yet sin is expressed all around us. 
this self-centeredness and this self-exaltation is expressed all around us. I remember years ago watching a movie with Tracy, and in, in this movie, this girl is dating this boy, and the father is concerned about this boyfriend, and the father is talking with the girl and, and talking about the concerns, and does she believe it's really wise that she should be dating this boy? And the daughter's response was something like, well, I believe God would want me to be happy. Isn't that... No, no, wait. I, I want to pause for a second. Does God want us to have joy? Absolutely, he does. And God has designed humanity to have joy in him. But, but the way she's saying it, it's not the same thing. It, it's, it's Eve's temptation. Remember when, when it says that Eve saw the fruit and it was a delight to the eyes. And what Eve did in that moment is she made herself and her waffling feelings the standard as opposed to what God actually said. She says, this is good for food. God says, that's not good. But she went for it. And this is, this is how we're born functioning in this world. What makes me feel happy? What elevates me and you know what? God's going to be okay with it because God just wants me to be happy, right? And he doesn't want to take away happiness. Now, as you hear this, you might be thinking of other people. Yeah, I, ho I hope so-and-so is listening to this sermon right now because they totally act that way. But I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about you. How do you self-justify? What are things that you say with regards to maybe your own sins? Do you say things like, well, God's going to be okay with me doing this because X reason, Y reason, you know, or, or maybe for you, you, you just say, well, I'm not as bad as other people, so like mine is more tolerable. If you think that way, and if you live making excuses for yourself, you're still self-centered. And, and the reason why I say that is if, if the essence of sin is self-exaltation, the only way to maintain your exalted status is to self-justify. You get that? Otherwise, if you admit, you have to come down. Does that make sense? And so in response to the fall, and, and, and what has happened in the fall, we have this immense tendency to elevate ourselves, and then when we're wrong, to justify ourselves so, th so that we can maintain this status because we don't want to admit that we're wrong because if we admit that we're wrong, then we have to be vulnerable. Then we have to be naked. And that vulnerability could mean that we're going to be crushed. Have you ever felt that way before? That translates not only in our relationships with other people, but it translates with our relationship with God himself. And this is precisely what we see moving forward in the Genesis narrative. And I, I want to take some moments to read this narrative. I have it on the screen here. You have your Bibles, hopefully, in front of you, too, because we're going to be trekking through this. So I'd encourage you to open your Bibles to Genesis 3. But again, if you don't have it, we have it on the screen as well, verses 8 through 13. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves 
from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The main idea of this sermon this morning is very simple. Shame breeds fear and excuses. Shame breeds fear and excuses. Already we know that Adam and Eve sowed fig leaves to protect themselves from each other. They take matters into their own hands to protect. And now God shows up. And what do we see? We see fear and excuses. Is this how God wants human beings to live? No, that's not how God wants human beings to live. And I want you to listen carefully because many people tend to embrace the mindset that, that Adam and Eve had in the temptation. We tend to think that God is a miser and a killjoy. You know, well, I'd really like to have fun, but you know, I'm a Christian. In the Genesis narrative, who is the killjoy? It's the serpent and our own sin. That's the killjoy. It's not God. Sin kills joy. And sadly, if we don't have the right response to sin, we are going to remain self-centered and we will only increase in our fear and making excuses for ourselves and in our shame, which is then going to breed more excuses and deception. And as a result, we continue to run from the communion with God that we were made for the communion with people that we were made for. This past week, I came across a quote from a man by the name of Paul Tripp that I think aptly describes what takes place in this text. He said this, grace will expose the depth of your sin while it astounds you with the extent of God's mercy. In knowing more of this Genesis account, we know this is what God is intending to do in this scenario. God is coming to confront in order to draw them to himself. Or, or maybe like the hymn writer, John Newton, who had been a slave trader and then came to faith in Christ. And this is what he says in the words of Amazing Grace, the hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And can you read the rest of this with me? And grace my fears relieved. But do you see? Grace teaches our hearts to fear. And then grace relieves our fears. Isn't this what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry when Mary is anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus says to the people who are mocking this, Jesus states, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What's the idea here? When you know 
the depths of what you deserve. When you are confronted with the reality of who God is and what your rebellion means, when grace teaches your heart to fear, then you look to God and see forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ and your love abounds all the more. So, so here's something that you can ask yourself. How's your love for God? Where is it? And if you're like, man, it's just like not much. At best, you have forgotten. You have forgotten how much you've been forgiven. And we need this message today so that God's fear, that good fear, comes down so that we see what we deserve. And then we're pointed to a Savior who his grace is greater than all of our sin. So we're going to walk through this, take the main idea, and we're going to start simply and just say, shame breeds fear. This is what we see as we start off. Again, it's not only that shame breeds fear with people, we, where we see Adam and Eve sow the fig leaves to protect themselves from each other, but we move on and we see that when God shows up in the garden, Adam and his wife hid themselves from God's presence. And Adam, Adam himself admits to God that he was afraid because he was naked. And that word for naked, it's not simply meaning that God could see nakedness, but it's the idea of nakedness and what it implies, this idea of shame. He's shamefully naked. Adam is afraid of God. And again, is that God's intention that people would live in, in, in cowering fear of God? No, that's not God's intention. But Adam is afraid, and Adam cowers. But God created humanity as the highest of all beings to ascend to the heights of communal relationship with God, to image forth his glory to all of the earth. But Adam and Eve are not shining the glory, they're hidden because the glory is removed in a sense. And notice what this fear does. This fear causes Adam and Eve to do stupid things. Like, and I, I mean that word, it's stupid. They hid. Do they really think they can hide from God? But this again, this reminds me of my own childhood. Maybe you had these experiences too. Maybe you remember the days when you were young enough and you thought, if I can't see my parents, they can't see me. Right? And you did something naughty, you did something wrong. I, I have some vivid memories. And I remember a, a, a time when I was in trouble and I went to my bed. I had a water bed at the time. And that was when those were popular, okay? And I went into that water bed and I thought like I could smush myself down enough like in the water bed so that you couldn't see bumps, right, of the covers. And if I just stayed there and didn't move, Dad wouldn't see me. And yet somehow, when he walked in the room, he knew exactly where I was. You know, that, that's not how it works. He can still see me. He can see the lumps. Okay, so that, that's one thing. I mean, Adam and Eve, this is stupid. God, who made everything, is not going to find you hiding behind a tree. You know? But the second reason why this is so, it's, it's beyond stupid, it is foolish, and it's, and it's so sad, 
is that what shame does is, is, is it leads Adam and Eve not only to do foolish, stupid things, but truly eternally foolish things because they need God. They need to be restored to God. And what are they doing? Hiding from him, the one who is the very answer they're turning from. And this is what we can tend to do as human beings, right? We sin, we have shame. Ooh, I'm not going to talk to God. Who do you need most? God. So then we have a question that comes to us. How is God going to get Adam and Eve to humble themselves before him and reject this sinful fear? How is he going to do this? And my answer is, what we see in this text is that God appears in sin-stripping, humility-inducing glory. Like, well, that sounds fancy, you know. But where do we see this in the text? And this whew, totally excites me. There's so much more that I, I can and could study on just verse 8. Hopefully what I say here is helpful. But what we see is actually in this uh, narrative is this phrase, cool of the day. How do I get God appears in his sin-stripping, humility-inducing glory? And I look at the phrase cool of the day. The word cool actually shows up earlier in this narrative. And just guess in your mind where this word, the Hebrew word behind cool shows up. It shows up in Genesis 1, 2. All right, so let's just look at Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Where's the word cool? You know where the word cool is? You might, some of you might have some guesses on where, where the word cool is, but this word, this Hebrew word for cool, can be translated wind, can be translated breath, can be translated spirit. I, I don't tend to think that it makes sense in this tight narrative that Moses is telling. I don't think that it makes sense that God is simply saying, when it was cool outside, I showed up. This is a very tight narrative with connections. And I think the spirit that showed up in Genesis 1-2 the spirit who showed up over the chaos, remember? That darkness is covering the face of the waters and there is, it's formless and void. And what does the spirit do then? What does the spirit do as a result of this? Then as a result of this formlessness and void, then the spirit has days that he creates. And in those days, after every single day, what does he do? God declares this is what? good and this is good and this is good so what is the spirit's role here that we see even in chapter one the spirit comes to bring order from chaos chaos is there it has no power over the spirit what just happened in the garden what did adam and eve do they sinned which means chaos has entered chaos has entered the garden and now i think the translation could be better stated and the Spirit of God, oh wait, I'm sorry, they heard the sound of the Lord God traversing the garden as the Spirit of the day. That's a very legitimate way to translate this. 
He, God entered the garden as the spirit of the day. Hence, throughout the Old Testament scriptures and even New Testament, sometimes when you hear about the day, what's that talking about? The day of the Lord. Judgment, right? So here we have the spirit of the day, the spirit who, who, who made judgment of verse 2 and then brought order. The same spirit is showing up in the garden to bring judgment. Now, I think this is faithful to Genesis 1 through 3. I also think this is faithful to the original audience. Do you remember who's the original audience of this? Can you say it? What? Israelites, Israelites wandering around in the wilderness. And so question for you, do you think they have any scenario where God descended like a storm cloud? Because this word for spirit, I don't think it negates wind. I don't think it negates storm ideas. I think it all comes together. But yes, the Israelites would know Mount Sinai, right? God descends on Mount Sinai, and it's like, we're not, we can't even come close to that. We're going to die. But, but God calls Moses in, and Moses goes in, and Moses communes with the Lord on the top of Mount Sinai. God, God reveals himself in this storm. And so I think when the Israelites read this, they go, oh, yeah, we know about that. We've experienced that, too. Watch out, Adam and Eve. God is coming down. No, but actually, this brings out a very important concept, because you could say, well, then no wonder Adam and Eve were scared. If this was the entrance of God into the garden, I'd run too, wouldn't you? Yeah? Okay, but th this is actually, this point is why we read the psalm passage earlier in the service. And if I can just remind us of this. With the purified, why is it not changing? Can somebody get me the clicker? Changing on mine, but. So I'll read it. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. When we read that, did any of you think, that's weird? With the purified, you seem pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. What is that saying? If you have been purified by God, if you have been forgiven, thank you. Let me go. There. If you have been forgiven by God and you know you're standing before God, you can enter into the presence of God even like Moses did. Moses didn't walk away from the mountain. Moses went straight in, straight into the storm, and God protected him and God cared for him. But if you know, if you know sin and shame and you're not letting go of it and you're excuse making, what do you do? Hide. To those who have been purified, God is awe-inspiring. You read texts about the gloriousness of his glory and you tremble with amazement. But if you still cling to yourself, yeah, God seems like a tyrant. He seems like he's trying to torture us. I don't want to have anything to do with God. 
This is what sin, this is sin's lies. So imagine the scenario now. In the garden, God is descending on the chaotic garden like a storm ready to judge. Adam and Eve run and hide. God won't allow them to hide because this is mercy. God in his mercy wants to strip Adam and Eve of their self-reliance. His grace is teaching their hearts to fear. And in mercy, he's exposing the depths of their sin because they haven't just eaten from some fruit from a tree. They've rebelled against the eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful creator who owns all of this. They've destroyed the beautiful creation. Everything is shattered. And in a tremendous display of his glory and judgment, Adam and Eve are becoming more aware of the horror that they committed. They can't stay hidden. God won't allow it. And so in verse 9, we're told that God calls for the man. Where are you? Now that's really interesting that God calls for the man because who ate the fruit first? What? Eve, the woman. She ate the fruit first and yet God is speaking to Adam. And that should be a question in our mind. Why is that the case? Why is it Adam and not Eve? He got the order wrong. No, he didn't. We see even in the creation order, we, we took a week talking about the value and, and the beauty of, of women and God's creation of woman. But I want to add this too. There, there's, there's a unique way in which God created men, and we see this even in the confrontation. Sometimes people will, I think, oversimplify the differences between man and woman, and, and not just biologically, but they'll just say, men lead, women submit. And that's the definition of male, maleness and femaleness. Um, and the difference in glory. Um, those words have fallen prey to so much problems. And, and by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but the word lead actually never shows up in the Bible in context to husbanding. Did you know that? And I'm not, other words can be related to that. And I'm not saying those don't show up, but I'm, I'm saying that so that you understand, I think there's some freedom in how we describe what the Bible teaches about the role of men. And so the words that I prefer to use and what I see in Genesis creation account is that men have been given ultimate responsibility and accountability before the Lord. Responsibility and accountability. And oh, how I wish all men would think that way. Instead of just saying, honey, I'm supposed to lead, you're supposed to submit. That's it. Instead, that men would say, God, you have given me responsibility and I am accountable to you for this. If you understand that, oh, we'd be praying more. We'd be taking this seriously. And God's confrontation of Adam first, Adam is the responsible one, or most responsible and accountable before the Lord. That's why in the New Testament, it always says we fell into sin because of Adam. We're in Adam, we're not in Eve. Adam, highest accountability and responsibility before the Lord. And even in this text, the you, the, uh, the pro, pronoun you is, is in the singular. God's not talking to Adam and Eve, he's talking to Adam until he talks to Eve. Now Adam doesn't respond with here I am. Instead, he brings his excuse as to why he's hiding. 
And it almost seems as though his excuse is given so that like maybe God would understand why he was hiding and have a little bit of understanding towards him. But then as he gives his excuse, it, he ends up indicting himself, right? And he says, oh, I was afraid because I was naked. Oops. And then God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Which then leads us to this second point. Shame breeds excuses. Adam's caught red-handed. And what's he going to do? The man says, oh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. He front ends and puts everybody, he, he puts the other two people or other two beings in front of him. First, the woman. This woman who, by the way, just earlier, he was amazed and so grateful to have her. And he agreed, she's good. Now, it's the woman. And, and by the way, God, just, just saying, you gave her to me. I mean, if you wouldn't have problems wouldn't have happened. Is that what he's implying here? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that's what he's saying. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And I ate. I, I hope that we can see how our sin and shame just breeds excuses. Think about, think about yourself. Now, by the way, Adam can't get around the confession. He still has to admit, but I did do it. But can you relate to this kind of excuse making? I mean, let's just get like really, 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 really practical. And you're driving on the road and somebody cuts you off and you get sinfully angry. And you know what? You don't even think that's wrong to get sinfully angry because they're stupid right? That idiot. Oh my goodness. What? Ugh. Thank you, God. I'm not like them. Hmm. Are we just self-justifying here? Are we making excuses in so many ways? I mean, we, we'll even use phrases like, well, you know, nobody's perfect in order to excuse so that we can just still tolerate the sin. That's not okay. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, that means that you have been saved so that you can grow in being more like him. It, it, of course, we're not perfect, but God has promised that he helps us to grow and, and helps us to hate sin and to love righteousness. If, if we don't confess, then we're not really drawing close to God, are we? We're still living on the basis of ourselves and not on the basis of him. We're still living in our sowed fig leaves and not in the transparency before God in relationship and communion with him. Will we confess or will we self-justify? Now, some people will say, yeah, but if I confess, if I confess, that means other people are off the hook. Have you ever, have you ever felt that before? Maybe there's an argument between you and somebody else and you're like, well, I'm not saying sorry first because they need to know they did something wrong. Anybody else think that way? Okay, thank you, Becky. We're, you know, and Aaron. All right. Um, I imagine 
all of us at some point in time have thought that way? What are we doing in that moment? We're holding that person to us. Instead, our concern must be, God, I need you. I need you more than I need that person to acknowledge me. They need you. And so God, I confess, I confess my neediness. And I humble myself before you. You know, this, this reminds me of Isaiah chapter 6. Many of you are familiar with Isaiah 6, but the prophet Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God. And he has this vision. He's taken up into the throne room of heaven. And, and in this throne room, the, the throne is high and lifted up. And above the throne, there's these angelic beings that are, that are praising God incessantly, saying, holy, holy, holy. And then, then the Lord shows himself to Isaiah. And we're told that the train of his robe fills the temple. And then, and then, then the temple starts to shake like an earthquake, and it's filled with smoke. And you remember what Isaiah's response is to all of this? Woe is me. That, that word woe, the idea is Isaiah is saying, may your wrath be poured out on me. That's all I deserve. For my sinfulness, all I deserve is your punishment. Because he's now come into the presence of the holy, 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 holy God. His mouth is stopped. No excuses. Just pour your punishment on me. That's what I deserve. And what's really interesting about the placement of Isaiah 6 is if you look at Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah is making judgments about all the people out here, which actually I think were appropriate judgments. But then it's interesting that then God says, yeah, but what about you, Isaiah? Not just woe is them. What about you? What do you deserve? And when Isaiah confesses, woe is me, what happens? Does God crush Isaiah and pulverize him? No. He brings forgiveness to Isaiah. And then Isaiah says, I want to go and tell people about your glory. When you know how much you've been forgiven, then you love much and you will go. This is God's intention calling Adam to confess. This is what God is calling us to confess. No more self-justifying. Confess. Because if you don't confess, you don't admit your need. And if you don't admit your need, then you're separated from God. But at least to a very small degree, Adam does get to some kind of admission. And after that admission, we read, we read that God looked at Eve see here. Hmm. What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now in modern vernacular, actually the intensity of the Hebrew would be more like us saying, what were you thinking? You, a ruler under God's rule, and you've rebelled. What were you and then we have Eve's response, which sounds similar a little bit to Adam's. She front ends a statement, right? But I, this, is my, this is my viewpoint. 
okay? I had one commentator who kind of acknowledged my viewpoint here, so I want to be careful, but at the same time, you do your own study on this one, okay? I'm not convinced she's justifying herself here. And you're like, well, yeah, because she says the serpent deceived her. But in the Hebrew form for the word deception and in the Greek form of the word deceived, it has implicitly moral culpability. In our culture today, if I say, I was deceived, that kind of gets us off the hook in certain ways. In ancient Hebrew and in Greek, that doesn't get you off the hook. That means... I allowed myself to be deceived. And actually, when you go into the New Testament and when the New Testament authors talk about Eve and her sin, at least twice you find them saying, Eve was deceived and she ate. They affirm the statement of Eve as though there was nothing wrong in that statement. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so actually, I'm not going to make much of this. I could probably preach a whole other sermon on it, okay? But, but actually, what I think we're probably seeing in this text is that Eve, in taking the fruit first, she expresses sin, right? And she's not the helper fit for the man, or she's not acting as the helper fit for the man. But then here, she actually is an example of humility for her husband, which would fit the New Testament teaching on one of the beauties of wives and women is that even through their, none of their words, they can win their husbands over that there is, there is some sort of ability God has given to women and to wives to be an example of obedience to help their husbands to obey the Lord. And so I actually think that we have an example here of Eve being an example of humility. The serpent deceived me. What else can I say? I ate. Whatever the case may be, what we see is that God doesn't simply want to judge he wants to restore the relationship. That's why he's calling for confession. And I hope that you would know that that's exactly what God's design is for you as well. So many times in the Old Testament when God reveals his glory with smoke and fire and storm, whether Mount Sinai or Isaiah or Elijah in, in, in the mountain or when God descends on the tabernacle or God descends on the temple with smoke and, and cloud, he does that to reveal himself and his powerful judgment, but he also does it in order to say, come back to me. I am here. He, he, he speaks mercy, he, or he speaks, yeah, he speaks mercy through judgment. And then we enter into the New Testament and God's glory descends through Jesus Christ and God's glory is revealed through Jesus. And even when Jesus went to the cross and took the punishment that sinners deserved on the cross, after Jesus died, what do we read in the book of Matthew that happened? There's an earthquake that takes place. God is speaking. And what is he saying? He's saying sins have been forgiven. God's judgment has been satisfied. But I know, I know that some people might say, if I confess to God, if I'm really vulnerable before God, God said to Adam and Eve, death is the punishment. I'm going to die if I'm vulnerable with God. Mm -mm. Because Jesus took the death. That's the beauty it's so astonishing. Yeah, you're right. You deserve death. You deserve punishment. But Jesus took the death. 
And then just very briefly here, what we see in, in such a beautiful form is that when Jesus then ascends up into heaven, or before he ascends up into heaven, he tells the disciples, I'm going to send another helper. And who is this helper? The spirit, which I'm going to say is the spirit of the day. And when the spirit of the day shows up on the initial disciples, how does he show up? In wind and flaming tongues. And the Apostle Paul describes that as a sign of judgment to the Corinthian church. But a sign of judgment in order to say there's mercy if you come to Christ. Here are all these people in the early church that they admit we're sinners, we're in need of a Savior, and we always fall short of his glory, and he is always good in forgiving us, and God gives the Spirit so that they can also say like Isaiah, here am I, send me, I'll go and speak your glory. I once couldn't, now I can. I will speak your glory. So the question for you, the question for you today if I can get to this in the slides. Mm, it's not there. Oh, yes, here it is. Has grace taught your heart to fear and has grace relieved your fears? Are you going to embrace your shame, fear, and excuse making? Are you going to confess and find reconciliation with God? And some of you might say, well, hey, hey, I've already trusted in Jesus Christ. Yep, grace taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. And I'm not just talking about the first time you came to faith in Jesus Christ, because you know what? We as Christians still battle against sin, right? And Satan still is an accuser of the brothers. And there could be right now sins in your life that you're holding on to, or you're, you're not confessing them and agreeing to the heinousness of them, like God would say. The word confess means to agree with God about it. Not just, yeah, it was bad. Okay, look, moving on. Are, are you holding on? You still have the fig leaves. Are you running and hiding from God? That's embracing your shame. That's still making you center so you can be a little high. But here's the thing. God promises that if you humble yourself, he will exalt you. And it's so much better to have God exalt you than for you to exalt yourself. Because those who exalt themselves will be brought down. But those who humble themselves will be raised up. And that's grace. Do you know this grace? We're going into this communion. And I want you to truly contemplate, where are you today? Are you in the excuse making? Or are you into the, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or this sin isn't really that bad? Or, but somebody's worse. Or will you just say, God... I am open and bare. I am naked before you. And that is the safest place to be. Because in you there is forgiveness. Amen. Stand and hear these words as we conclude our time together. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.